If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Mary Todd Lincoln. She'll be answering our call in late 1876 while living in France at the age of 58. Mary was born into a life of privilege. Her family was large, wealthy, and owned as many as 60 slaves. In her youth, Mary went to the finest schools where she learned fluent French, proper etiquette of a lady, and politics. She spoke her mind and excelled in her studies. Her future husband's upbringing was exactly the opposite— He was born in a poor family in Kentucky and educated himself. Yet, when they met, Mary knew that she saw something special in him. She called him her diamond in the rough. Together, they harnessed every bit of political savvy and influence to reach the executive mansion, now called the White House. Then, after it appeared that they had reached the pinnacle of success, the world came crashing down. Her third child died. The Civil War broke out. She spent so much money shopping that Congress had to pay the bill. Her husband was assassinated, and her surviving son sent her to a sanitarium. Except for that, everything was perfect. Behind many of these great men, there was an equally great woman. Although the later years of her life were not pleasant, if there had been no Mary Todd Lincoln, there may not have been a President Abraham Lincoln either. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and interior decorators everywhere, I give you Mary Todd Lincoln. Hello, Mrs. Lincoln, is that you? Yes, it is. Ma'am, I am thrilled to be speaking with you today. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting across a table from one another. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, because in our time, I'm not sure that you've received all the credit that you were due for sacrificing so much to keep our union together. But before I ask, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you may have first? Well, this device that you you provided for me here, you called it a a smartphone? It is called a smartphone, yes. Well, I don't know how smart it is, but I I don't know if you know all the education that I have compared to my husband. (laughs) Well, I do know a little bit about your education. I I understand you went to some pretty nice schools. I'd love to hear about that. I did. I I studied as a young girl at Ward's Academy. I lived there part of the time, too, in uh, Mentel's, where I went afterwards. So for six years, I was at Ward's, and then I I boarded at Madame Mantel's boarding school, where we were only allowed to speak in French. I, I lived there five days of the week to more or less be away from my stepmother. <laughs> but yes, I had, I had many years of formal education. But I don't so, know if this device, is that how did they educate it? <laughs> well, that is a very long story. Let me tell you what, the amount of information that is in that device, it takes hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people to actually collect all the information and then store it into the, that device. It's like a 100,000 human brains. It's, it's incredible. In fact, that device can yes. speak French. <laughs> really? Yes. I could have a conversation with it then. <laughs> you absolutely could. You could. You know, when you say that you lived there and they only, at, at your school and they only allowed you to speak French, I, was one, I knew that you spoke French, but I didn't know how you became fluent. And that's it. You spoke that's French 24 hours a day? Yes, at the boarding school. Well, not always when we were outside of our classes, but in class we did have to speak French. When I was in the room with my friends or speaking with them, I didn't outside of the teachers here, and I spoke some English then, yes. Did you enjoy that school? Did you, did you enjoy that? I did. I loved it. It was, I shone. 
because I loved learning. I loved being in the place, being around people who cared about me. I thrived there, yes. Very yeah. much so. And on weekends, I often did not return to my father's home either, but went to my grandparents' or other family members' home. Was that because you mentioned your stepmother? You didn't get along with her? Yes. She called me the devil's arm. The devil's arm? Yes. We wow, did not have a lot of That seems a little bit intense. I would agree. <laughs> what was the conflict you had with her? Well... She kept having baby after baby after baby after she married my father. My, my mother passed away when I was six years old, and I had been the, the apple of my father's eye. But as she continued having all these babies, for one, there was not much room in our home, and also uh, it distanced me father and father from my father. So I resented that, I will admit. But she did not understand me when I was a young girl. I wanted to have the latest fashion, which was hoop skirts. So my cousin Elizabeth Humphrey and I, we went out and we got some of the, the, the limbs off the willow tree. And we soaked them and we got them so we could bend them into a, a circle. And we sewed them, stayed up all night, and sewed them inside of our dresses so we could have hoop skirts. Next morning, we were going to go to church. And as we walked out of the door, my stepmother saw me grabbed me by the arm, made me come back inside and, and scolded me severely who did I think I was and, and made me take my dress off and I was just mortified. I was so upset that she would do that. Then many years later, when Mr. Lincoln was serving in the legislature in Washington, I'd come back with the boys to stay at my and visit with my father. My dear little Eddie, he had grown quite attached to a kitten he had found. And when my stepmother saw it, she railed and she said that it was filthy, dirty, and made them throw it out on the street. Oh, that's the kind of heart she had. She sounds like an awful woman. What did your father see in her? She was beautiful. <laughs> she was young. He started courting her even before the mourning period was up for my own mother. Oh, is that right? Yes. She was also a rebel. Oh, she was. When you say one of the things, one of the problems you had with her, she kept having babies, which diluted your father's interest in you, it sounds like, unfortunately. I'm wondering, you say that she kept having babies. Your father was involved in that, wasn't he? I guess you're right there. <laughs> but I was just so used to having him treat me special. It just hurt a lot. Yeah, I, I can see it's that. It's easier to blame her than him. Yes, you're yeah, right. You don't want to blame him because you <laughs> like him. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's my father. Do you, do you have memories of your mom before she passed along? I know you were young. Oh, not very many. I know that she dearly loved me. I, I do know that. Yeah, I know, you're, I know you're very young. Yeah, it was me and Miss Sally who became my surrogate mother when she passed away, and she practically raised me, not my stepmother. Me and Miss Sally, now, yes, me and Miss Sally was one of the slaves that lived with us in our home. Well, and that raises a question, because obviously later in your life, slavery became a big topic in the Lincoln household, as the North is basically saying no more slaves. And your family is from Kentucky, which I understand is a border state, and you had lots of slaves. Is that correct? Well, my father at one time had over 60 slaves, but I didn't see most of them. They were out in the fields. It was only the house slaves that I knew. We, we treated them like family. I, I honestly thought that they were better off being our slaves because we could take care of them. I, I saw them as children that needed taken care of. There were many episodes that led me to realize how evil this slavery really was. But like I said, me and Miss Sally was like my mother to me. She was the one that would tuck me in bed at night, tell me stories. And one day I, I discovered that me and Miss Sally had a secret. She was putting a mark out on our gate to let runaway slaves know that they could stop there and get food. Is that and so right? I, I offered, yes, 
I offered to help her, and she said, no, if they reach out with your little hand, my little white hand, that they would run away like scared rabbits. So I never told anybody at that time that we were part of the Underground Railroad. Sally yes, shared I, that with you? She did. Yes. At what age? We had a very close relationship. Well, she raised me, like I said, from the time I was six until I left home. She was more or less like my mother. So um, I knew it from a, an early age, but I swore to secrecy and never, never told anyone then. Did you ever tell Mr. Lincoln? Oh, yes. After, after the war and after she had passed and, and, and we were in the midst of the war, it no longer mattered. I, I let it be known then. But my progression, it was brought about by a number of influences on my life and my views on slavery. We had a, a lady that lived in Lexington that one time, oh, she treated her slave horribly. And she threw a young boy out of a, a window and crippled him for life. She was later murdered by one of her slaves, and I thought she got her just as her. I never, I never held to mistreating people. We, we lived, when I was born, there on Short Street next to Grandmother Parker's. Right across the, the street was a slave auction. So I, I saw those poor people in shackles being treated <laughs> Less than animals. And, and I could not abide by that. I could not agree to treat them as such, even though I still believed they were better off living with us, being treated well. It was as my life encountered other people, including Mrs. Keckley, Miss Elizabeth Keckley, who became my, my dressmaker, and my dear friend and constant in the White House, in the executive mansion. She had been a slave herself. She had been impregnated by her slave owner. Had that right? Named George. Yes, and George actually volunteered during the Civil War as a Union soldier because his skin was so fair that they took him as a white man. He Is died. Is George her country. son? Yes, George was her son. George was her son. He died. Okay. Yes, he died fighting for the country. He died fighting for the North? Yes, he did. Boy, Elizabeth Keckley sounds like she was a, a, a very interesting person. How did She was. And she seems, like, she seems like my kind of person, too. I mean, she seemed like she was industrious. And didn't she go from slavery and build a successful business, making dresses for the wealthy people? Can you tell me more about that relationship and, and what you know about her? Well, our relationship over time changed, too, that we parted not as friends. But at the time, I will go back, um, yes, I had heard that she was a, a wonderful seamstress and modest, and I sought her out. One of her clients was Mrs. Jefferson Davis, in fact. And before the war started, Mrs. Davis, Verena, she told Lizzie that, and that's what we called Mrs. Kerkley, Lizzie that there was going to be a war. And that once that war started, they would blame the Negroes as the cause of the war. So she needed to go south with her and Mr. Davis where she could be protected. And once they won the war, that she could then be the dressmaker for the president's wife in the executive mansion in Washington. <laughs> Fortunately, Mrs. Keckley did not believe her lies. Instead, she became my seamstress in the White House. We became very, very close friends. I confided in her many things. She and me, too. And in fact, she started the Contraband Association for the Runaway Slaves. And there were many, many runaway slaves who found their way to Washington with just the, the rags on their backs. No food, no place to stay. And that's what she started was this organization to help them. And what? I started attending this, her speaking engagements, raising funds with her, because at first she had not been successful. When I joined her, then more money started coming in. Mr. Lincoln and I also contributed towards that cause. Boy, she really sounds like she is something. A as she built her dressmaking business, I understand she wrote a book as well. Is that when you guys, the two of you had the following out? Well, that was not at the beginning. That was much later after Mr. Lincoln's death. 
that she wrote the book. Oh, I could go on and on about my relationship with her. The old dress, old clothes scandal. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's what it became known as. No, please tell me. Well, after Mr. Lincoln's death, I was in dire straits. I owed money. I did not have much money to live on because Mr. Lincoln died without a will. Until the estate could be settled, I had very little money to live on, to take care of my boys, to have a place to stay. And so I knew a lot of the royalty in Europe had sales of their clothes. They had ready money in them. I had much money. I had invested in my costumes, my my dresses. And so I thought I would do the same. But I didn't want it to be known that they were mine for fear of how Robert, my oldest Robert, my only surviving son, how he would behave because so many times I would embarrass him. He would become very, very angry with me and therefore I did not want to upset Bobby, but I needed that money. So Mrs. Keckley acted as my go-between and she found Mistress Keys to auction off my clothing in New York City they somehow discovered that it was me, that I was the one who was selling my clothes. And so when they had these sales and the, the auctions, people rushed in and they started grabbing and tearing at them until they were nearly destroyed, some of them, and, and were not nearly of the state that they had been in. And, of course, it didn't help that the lawyer, Mr. Davis, who was uh, settling my husband's estate, said that I didn't need money. That's what he had put in the paper. (laughs) So people thought that I was just making a show of myself and that I was deranged. And she had gone as my representative, as I told you, leaving her work behind. And I do understand I'd promised to pay her money but I no longer had the money to be able to pay her. Well, because she had lost so much business, then she determined that she would write a story to tell what had happened inside the White House while she lived there with us. So that's why she wrote the tell-all book, because you had promised to pay her money, but you didn't have money to pay her. She'd lost all that business, so now she had to make money. But you do not tell tales on other people. That is not correct. That is not the Victorian way. I'm sure she could have gone back to her dressmaking. She didn't need to write that and to include the letters, the personal letters that I had written to her that were for no one else's eyes. That is unforgivable. No, I I, I can understand that, especially because a lot of the time that she spent with you, I mean, you're, you're the first lady. I mean, as the first lady, everything that is said there is confidential. Absolutely. That is not to be told outside. Yeah. You know, there should be a saying. What happens in the executive mansion stays in the executive mansion. Do you think that that would work in that time? I do. I think that that is entirely true. Although so many things happened in the executive mansion that everybody knew about because our doors were open to the general public. Anybody could walk in. I never knew who I would greet outside of my bedroom door. There would be people lined up to meet with Mr. Lincoln, some of them even staying there sleeping on the floor. I had no privacy and none at all there. People were sleeping in the executive mansion on the floor waiting to talk to Mr. Lincoln? Yes. Mr. Walter Lemon, his guard, his bodyguard, who at one time had been his law partner, he would camp outside Mr. Lincoln's room, his office, to make sure nobody disturbed him during the night. That's incredible. I want to ask you something about that, but I have to go back. There's something in my head I can't get out of my mind. Mr. Lincoln, my understanding, built an extraordinary law business in Springfield, and he was a well-respected lawyer, and I mean, he could spin a tale. I've read some of his speeches, and I'm trying to figure out how this accomplished lawyer didn't have a written will. Were you stunned when he passed along and there was no will? Well, many, many men at the time did not. But yes, I was. I was very agitated when I discovered this. Even though there had been many threats on his life, even before he entered the White House, and and attempts on his life, one of which I was the, the brunt of that attempt, he still took no regard for his life or his death. 
he felt that in the country of Oz, with the simple waste, that assassination was always a possibility. But he did not fear it. I was the one that always had to insist that he had gods with him when he traveled from the um, soldiers' home where we would send us summers or where I went when I was in mourning for my dear little Billy. Because he told me one day that he was on his horse traveling between executive mansion and soldiers' home when someone shot through his top hat. Now, he laughed. It knocked off his hat. He thought that it was funny, but I did not laugh. I told him he needed, and Mr. Wardell Lehman as well, that he needed to have gods with him every time he made that trip. But he would slip away. <laughs> he thought that it was, it was funny that he could outsmart them by sneaking out on them. Was he? I agree with you. <laughs> the President of the United States needs to be surrounded by guards because, as you know, and as anybody knows, in politics, you're never going to make anybody happy, and there's going to be a small percentage of people that are just going to be out of their minds at any given moment. If he runs into one of those people, something bad is going to happen. I mean, something bad obviously did happen. But when I'm listening to you talk about him, I'm trying to figure out. Was Mr. Lincoln courageous or was he foolish? I guess it depends upon who you talk to. <laughs> I felt he was a little bit of both. In retrospect, um, more foolish than brave because we know what happened that horrible night at Ford Theater. Yeah. Yes. You were there that evening, weren't you? Oh, I wish that I was not. I wish he that I was because I could not have bared the thought of my husband. Being alone without me facing such a thing. But do you know what the very last words were that my husband spoke? And no, no, what were they? they? Well, you must remember that this was one of the happiest days of our lives. The war was drawn to an end. Generally, he had surrendered at the Madison Courthouse to General Grant. And Richmond had fallen. It, it was... <laughs> It was a time of jubilee. The whole city of Washington was celebrating. It was ablaze with light, fireworks going off, cannons shooting over the Potomac. Rejoicing, jubilee, it was, it was a miraculous time. And it was at a time that my husband finally could take that burden off of his shoulders that he had been carrying for so long. I had often insisted he take carriage rides because that would give him a little respite to have time to, to get away from it. But on the morning of April the 14th, I asked him if he wanted someone else to ride with us. That was our general policy. But he said, no, Molly, that's what he called me, Mother and Molly. I want to be alone with just you. So we had a wonderful time together that day. We talked about our plans for the future, about traveling to Jerusalem and in the United States and setting up law practice, probably in Chicago as opposed to Springfield, but our Robert's marriage, just looking forward to the time when he was no longer the president. And as he looked at me, I said, I, I barely recognize you, Mr. Lincoln. You are so cheerful. He also said that we both needed to be more cheerful because between the war and the death of our, our Willie, well, life had been most painful for us. Yeah, so he hadn't seen a lot of cheer. We, no, it, we definitely had not. So at that day, everything was looking up. We went to the theater. We were late. We had been there before. We had been to other plays with Laura Keene, and I knew that she was a wonderful actress, and our American cousin was a, a, a very funny show. So we looked forward to that evening. As we were sitting there with our friends, Clara Harris and, and her beau, Henry Rathbone, I leaned over to my husband, and as well, actually, I was leaning on his shoulder, and I said, what will they think of us? And he said to me, they won't think anything of it. His words were words to me of love and reassurance. 
as I was leaning my head on his shoulder, that fateful bullet struck him through the back of his head, and he fell on my lap. So what did you do? <laughs> I screamed. I screamed. I tried to staunch the blood flow. Other people came in and, and grabbed him and tried to help, too. And I had blood all over my clothes, and they carried him across the street, and I followed to the Peterson home. I mourned. I cried. Open your eyes and speak to me. I couldn't believe in the midst of all this happiness that this terrible, terrible thing would happen. I wished to die right there with him because he was my life, my soul, my heart. Secretary of War Stanton made me leave the room. He said that my behavior was not becoming to the president. And I was not with him when he passed, which I, it's the most terrible thing a woman could do is not be by her husband as he dies. I will never forgive him for that either. Never forgive Stanton? Correct. Gosh, that is, that's an impossible situation. I wonder, as, as you think back to that situation, he probably asked you to leave the room because they were trying to attend to him. And it was a very small room, but no matter how small, a wife's place is there with her husband. Yeah, I think you're right. Man, that's incredible. That room is a museum now. Oh, is it? It yeah, should it, be. It should be a shrine. As I think of John Wilkes Booth, the man who, who shot your husband, did you know him personally? I did not. I knew him to be a fine actor. <laughs> it's hard for me to even say those two words together with his name. Yes, I knew his family. His family were, were very fine actors. But I did not know him personally, no. My understanding is, is that he had acted at Ford Theater many times, and his family was very involved. But why all of a sudden does he lose his mind and do this terrible thing? I really cannot imagine. I cannot get into the mind of a madman to do it. I've been told things that because of his hatred for my husband, believing that he was a, trying to... to get rid of slavery, and he was a Confederate sympathizer, and that was why he did it. And I'm, I'm glad that he was killed, and those who contributed to my husband's death were also put to the, the gallows. I do not focus on that. I focus on what my husband did, what he accomplished in his life, not how he died. Yeah, I think I would do the same thing. My understanding is that evening, the, the couple that you went with, they were not the people that were supposed to be with you. My understanding is that uh, General Grant and his wife were supposed to be with you that night. Is that correct? They were one of the couples that we asked, yes. And uh, they declined. They said that they had to go to their, be with their children. They were traveling by train, and they would not be in town during the time that we were to go to the theater. We also asked Secretary of War Stanton and his wife to attend, but they also were unable to. So my dear friend Claire Harris was the one that we asked to, to come, and she brought along her fiancé, Major Rathbone. Well, the reason that I asked if General Grant was supposed to be with you is because I spoke with him a few days ago, and oh, he really? said definitively, and I know you have some feelings about him, and I'd like to hear them, but he said definitively that if he had been there that evening, and he regrets not being there that evening, but if he had been there that evening, there is no way that Mr. Booth would have made it up there at all, that there would have been no chance because he would have had so many men protecting the president. But you have, and based on what he told me, I believe that that is true. But you have a different opinion of him. My understanding is you're not a big fan of General Grant. Is that correct? <laughs> well, during the war, I was definitely not a fan of his because <laughs> he was a butcher. He would lose two of our men for every one of our enemies who died. And, and it was widely known that he was a drunkard, and I cannot tolerate anybody who drinks heavily. I have many in my family who have suffered from being alcoholic, so I, I am very familiar with what that is. Yes, I, I went so far as calling him a small specimen of humanity. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I was very upset with him because he, he did not hold any value to human life. He sacrificed so many of our men, and I did not think that was necessary. Well, I am but, definitely not asking this question just to be argumentative because I certainly put a lot of value on human life, as, as you do as well. However, your husband was a wise man. There's no question about that. And my understanding is your, your husband went through a lot of generals trying to find somebody that would fight and get to General Grant. Why do you think he chose him? Why didn't he pick one of the other generals if, if he was just a butcher and a drunk and he was not the right guy for the job? I'm sure my husband had his reasons, and one being that Grant, he fought. He didn't, like McClellan, he didn't turn tail and run when he had the enemy in sight. He forged on ahead. And uh, I'm sure that is why Mr. Lincoln chose him and stuck with him in, fight, in spite of the fact that many, many men died under him because he did bring victory. I do understand that. I just thought there should be a better way where so many men didn't have to die. Now, when my husband went behind my back and had our son Robert appointed as his aide-de-camp, I was very upset with him, but at least it was in a position where my Robert wouldn't be fighting, where he was protected. Of that, I, I am appreciative. Did Robert oh, want he, to fight? Yes, he did. He begged and begged us to allow him to enlist. But as I told General Sickles, I would rather my son be an educated man than an ignoramus. And didn't our country want educated men to serve? In all capacities, not just in war. He was a student at Harvard, studying to be a lawyer, and that's where I thought he should stay. I'd already lost two of my sons. I could not tolerate the thought of losing yet another one. Now, of course, I've lost three of my sons. I don't know how anyone could keep their sanity with all of the, <laughs> the death that, that you've had. Three of your sons passed along, and then the one son that, that lives, of course, you had a falling out with him later in life. He didn't exactly stand up for you when you needed him the most, did he? <laughs> well, Robert always has felt like he was more of a Todd than a Lincoln. That the Lincolns were not quite, his father was not even quite good enough for him, I don't think. He always saw himself more along the aristocrats. I embarrassed him quite often by my behavior. It was not just one falling out I had with my son. I mentioned the old clothes scandal that upset Robert greatly. But any time my name appeared in the paper, Robert would be upset about it. When I was in St. Augustine, this was in um, 1875, I had been traveling around the country for several years then, uh, living with friends and did not really have a home of my own at that time. This was after, after Tad had died, too. And I was in St. Augustine, and I, my, Mr. Lincoln and I both, we believe very strongly in dreams and premonitions. And I had this premonition that Robert was dying. So I immediately cabled him and and telegraph, and, 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 and I said to, to hold on, to be strong, that live for his mother, that I was coming, and I got on a train. And on the way, I, I was nearly poisoned. And, and, and I got there, and, and my son, he, he was fine. Thank the Lord, he was fine. But he could not understand why I had believed in this premonition, thinking that he really was dying. I stayed very shortly with his wife, Mary, and him there in Chicago, but she and I did not see eye to eye on too many things, so I moved to a hotel, and Robert stayed there with me. I kept hearing voices when I was in that hotel, and, and I, I told them about it, and, and I explained also how when I have my headaches, I, I get severe headaches. They have been even worse since the time of my carriage accident, one of those assassination attempts on Mr. Lincoln. And I, I've had these headaches since I was a young girl. But it was, it was like someone had 
pulled my scalp and my skull underneath of it and was pulling wires out of my eyes. And that's how severe the pain was. And one day I wanted to, to go out of the room and they, Robert said I was not dressed properly. And he grabbed me to try to keep me from going to the elevator. And I started screaming because I thought he was trying to, to hurt me. Murder, murder. Well, they, everything settled down. Then Mr. Sweat, a lawyer, a friend of ours, came to my room one day and he said that I needed to go with him to the courthouse, that charges of insanity had been brought up against me. And I said, well, Robert, we'll see about this. And when I got to that courtroom and I saw that it was Robert who had brought those charges against me. Robert brought charges against you? Yes, of insanity. To to be put in an insane asylum. Yes. You had to be furious. I was more hurt than furious. I could not believe he was doing this to his mother. In fact, that's the only words I said during the whole course of the trial. Robert, how could you do this to your mother? What did he say? This lawyer, he could not say anything. How could he? There he sat at the other bench with the lawyer who was telling all these stories about me. Do you know what some of the things they said, the witnesses, that why I was insane? Please tell me. They said, I had wanderlust. That was a sign of insanity because I like to travel. <laughs> then I'm insane too. Well, I dare say a number of people, including President Grant. When he came to, to France when I was living there, I made sure I was not home the day that he traveled through. He traveled all over the world. Now, did they bring him up on charges of insanity? I dare say not. But I, think we, bo- I think we know why. Because he's he a man. He was a man. That's exactly. right, because he's a man. Yes, in fact, they, they said because I had this disposition that was not always, I spoke my mind. As I told you, I'm highly educated. I was raised in political spheres. My father served in the Kentucky legislature. Henry Clay was a family friend, and I was allowed, I was encouraged to speak my mind politically. Why do you think Mr. Lincoln had such a successful political career? Because I opened doors for him. He used to read his speeches to me, and I would help him. I would give him advice. So I was not very popular because of my disposition. Well, it sounds like you were popular to Mr. Lincoln, and rightfully so, because that's the impression that I get, that you were the other side of him, the side that he needed. I mean, if you hadn't listened to those speeches and made suggestions, his appeal to the masses would have been different, because they would have come completely from a man and not from somebody that was intelligent, politically minded, and also was a woman. I mean, they may have been one-sided speeches. Well, I cannot take that much credit for influencing his speeches because he was a very, very well-written and spoken man. But I would give him his opinion, my opinion on how he should maybe rephrase something. And so it was basically him, but I still was able to give him advice. And let I appreciate sp- that he acknowledged that. Let me go back for a minute because I'm, I'm struggling with Robert and the insanity trial. I, I don't understand what happened here? I mean, I understand what happened with the trial. This, there's been a lot written about this. But do you think there was any chance that Robert had good intentions and was trying to protect you? And l- let me tell you what I mean by that. And please tell me I'm wrong if I am. But I'm just trying to understand how a man admits, his, puts his mom on trial and says, look, you've got to put her in a box somewhere because she's dangerous. I mean, prior to that, you had lost your three sons, and your husband had been assassinated. To be quite honest with you, that would make me crazy. I mean, were please don't be offended by this question, but were you a little crazy after all of that? Because if you weren't, the rest of us would be. Well, <laughs> it definitely affected me. I will admit that. How could it not? I grieved. I grieved severely for him. For my boys when they died, I could not even get out of my bed for weeks after Mr. Lincoln's death. I stayed there in the executive mansion, and Mrs. Keckley was one of those who did care for me in that time. 
But yes, how could he do this to his mother? Why would he do this to his mother? I thought it was because immediately following, he wanted my bond. I kept him on my body under my clothes. You're and saying your bonds, he wanted the bonds? Yes, my bonds, my money, my bonds that I held. And I, I asked him at least to allow me the privacy of going to my hotel room where I could undress and take them off to give them to them. Now, anybody listening to I, this that doesn't know this story is going to be confused, Mrs. Lincoln. My, I, I want to add a little color to this story. Because my understanding is when you say he wanted your bonds, you had a significant amount of U.S. bonds that I read that you sewed them into your petticoat and then they tried to have you disrobe in the court. Is that what happened? Well, immediately thereafter. It was not in open court. It was after the dismissal. But still, it was, it was not in a private location where I... I would have been able to do it discreetly. But there were so many things in that trial that were unseemly. They brought up the fact that I frequented spiritualists to brought them into the executive mansion of soldiers' home. But that was common practice. It was not unusual. We would begin with a church service. We would pray, read scripture, sing hymns. And then we would form our circle and hands and reach out. Our loved ones, so many had died from disease, from the war, and they were just on the other side of the veil. And it would bring so much comfort to be able to, to know that they were in God's hands, that they were all right, and to have that connection with them once again. They brought this up in the trial as being something abhorrent. But like I said, it was general practice. It was not just me. And then they said that I was paranoid because I had said that there were people following me. Well, Robert finally admitted that he had hired some detectives to follow me around for fear that I would be attacked for people to rob me of these bonds that I had on my person. So people were following you? Yes, they were. Okay, I'm confused again. All right, so now I'm, now I'm getting more confused. So Robert is saying that people are following you. Or I'm sorry, uh, you think that people are following you, and Robert is hiring people to actually follow you with the intention of protecting you. And yet he goes through this process of actually have you committed into an asylum. I guess I'm trying to figure out, did you ever reconcile with Robert and figure out what he was thinking? Was he seeing something you weren't seeing? I mean, what is his, was Robert poor? Did he need the money? Was he just trying to get the money from you? Why would he do this? Unless he's just mean. What's the reason? I have, I have not reconciled with my son yet. But I will say, I handed over everything that was required. That was one of the stipulations of this. And, and let me back a little bit, too. It was not Robert who was the one that was the, the lawyer speaking out. He had hired a lawyer. So he was sitting at the bench while the lawyer was accusing me of being paranoid. He was just using material that had been supplied to him by the witnesses and by Robert. But I had to turn over everything, every asset I had to Robert at that time. And I was able to, while in Batavia, Illinois, there at uh, Bellevue, the sanitarium, uh, Dr. Patterson, I, I stayed mainly with him and his family and their quarters rather than uh, among the general population, but I was able to sneak out some letters to Myra Bradwell, who was one of the, if not the first, but one of the first law, female lawyers, and she and her husband were able to appeal to Robert to the court to allow me to be released into the care of my sister Elizabeth and Ninian Edwards, that they would be my guardians back in Springfield. So after being in the sanitarium for six months, I was released into their care. The law said that after a person is found insane, that a year later, they can be retried. 
And Robert allowed that to happen. And I was found to be sane. At that time, Robert returned all my assets to me. And he had not wasted. He had not spent my money. He had actually increased my treasury, my amount of money that I was worth. I he had been a good steward that. of your money. He had, but I still thought of him as the devil, that he could actually have done this misservice to his mother, and I immediately fled to Europe. So, again, as I'm putting these pieces together, Robin fears, or Robert fears for your safety, and so he hires somebody to follow you to make sure that somebody doesn't hurt you, right? He has you put in the sanitarium because he thinks that you are distraught from all of the death and tragedy that you had to deal with. And then he takes control of your finances but doesn't waste any of it and then returns it later. I almost wish that I could talk to Robert and, Robert and figure out what the purpose was. See, this would make sense to me, Mrs. Lincoln, if after you got out of the sanitarium, the money was gone or half of it was wasted or you had a gambling problem. But it seems like, except for the fact that you disagree with him, everything that he was doing was in what he thought was trying to help you in some way. you get that impression? Oh, well, <laughs> with friends like that, or family members like that, how would you like it if your son put you on trial for insanity for something he perceived to be My insanity? son's 19. I'm going to put not. him on trial <laughs> for insanity. <laughs> Well, I do not believe that I was ever insane. I do believe that, yes, I had severe mourning for those I had lost. But I've never done anything that I consider to be insane. And for my son to have the audacity to have me put through this public spectacle and mortification is beyond the pale. I, I wonder. That I will never forgive. I wonder if this was just a man-woman thing. If you had been a man, Robert doesn't say that you're insane. I was, I was talking to my wife a little bit ago about this conversation because I was so excited to talk with you. And she said, well, what, did, what was she tried for? Was she tried for hysteria? Because back then all women were tried for hysteria. And I, I just think maybe if you were a man, this would have never happened. Do you agree with that? Well, that is possible. Because women are at a much alarming rate put into the insane asylum as compared to men. Maybe it's just men trying to find younger wives. That is a great possibility, <laughs> but that is not obviously the case with Robert and me. I want to go back to something else that you said about meeting with spiritualists. You were talking about how people were just right on the other side. Did you ever speak with a spiritualist and speak with Mr. Lincoln after he had passed? Of course, I, I went to spiritualists to try to, to reach Mr. Lincoln. But no, I never made any kind of contact with him. There was one photograph I had taken, too. And you can see Mr. Lincoln there beside me with his arm about me. So even though I did not see him or feel his presence, well, I felt his presence, but I did not see him. I truly believe that he was there with me. I saw that photo, and it's incredible. Is that photo real? I believe so. There are some who have tried to tell me that it's not, that it was a fraud meant to perpetuate uh, on my guilt to, to, to perpetuate this lie so that I would give them my money for it. But it was such a consolation to me to have it. Yeah, when I looked at that, and Mr. Lincoln has his hands on your shoulders, and I look at it and I, I was thinking that if he was there or trying to communicate with you, it, it seems like that's what he would have done. He would have put his hands on your shoulder and tried to console you. He did many times. Mr. Lincoln and I were both prone to have times of melancholia. And there were times when I, huh, I have a bad temper too. And I was yelling at Mr. Lincoln and God forgive me now. I so regret that. But he would just wrap his arms around me and say, there, there, Molly, it's all right, Mother. He knew what I needed just to be held and to be comforted. You had said you had a temper. Was he patient with your temper? Very much so. Oh, I was very patient with him many times, too, in his neglect to, 
being away from home all the time when he was riding the circuit, when he was politic and not earning any money, I had to sacrifice a lot being married to Mr. Lincoln. But we had to understand and deal with each other's our idiosyncrasies. And yes, my temper was part of that, I will admit. There were many times, like with Secretary of War Stanton, when I asked him to appoint a certain person to a position, and he, t- he told me that was not my place to do that. <laughs> and I was very, very angry with Mr. Stanton, but I realized he was, he was right. And I went to him later and I apologized. How so, would, yes, there have been times my temper has got me into trouble. If Mr. Lincoln was here right now and he was to describe you, he might say temper, but he would certainly use other words to describe you. How, how would he describe you? What are the words that he would use? Well, he told someone at one of the dinner parties that we gave in the White House. I don't remember the exact words, but it was along the line that he fell in love with me from the very beginning and that he still loved me just as much, that I was just as beautiful in his eyes. He was drawn to me because I was very lively. I was well-spoken and intelligent, and as I told you, involved in politics, we were both great fans of Henry Clay. We had both lost our mothers at young ages, but it was my social abilities, I think, that drew him in. And it's been told within my family that we met at a cotillion. He walked up to me and he said, Miss Todd, I would like to dance with you in the worst way. <laughs> he did. <laughs> That's what he said? Way. <laughs> yes. What was your response? Oh, well, I danced with him, obviously. Yes, we became friends. I'd heard of him before this because his first law partner was my cousin, John Todd Stewart. In fact, Mr. Lincoln, after the Blackhawks War, he had served with my, my cousin in the war, and he, he did not know what to do with his life. And my cousin John convinced him that he should become a lawyer. So he loaned him his law books, and Mr. Lincoln read them and studied to become a lawyer. So I'd heard of him, but I had yet to meet him until then, until this party. And, um, yeah, my family did not approve Mr. Lincoln one bit. Not at all. (laughs) I'm still trying to imagine these U.S. bonds sewed into her clothing. No wonder Robert thought she was insane. Fun fact, by the way, if you've not seen the picture Mary was talking about with Abe Lincoln behind her, it is eerie. The man who was passing it off as a real photo was taken to court for fraud, and the most famous huckster of them all testified against him, P.T. Barnum, the creator of Barnum and Bailey Circus. If you're too young to know what a circus is, well, it's, well, ask your parents. In the next episode, you're going to learn who Mary Lincoln really was. Although some saw her as the first lady, others a political liability, and others just crazy, she was one thing above all of that. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.